So the question we've been asking in our little series startup here the last uh, couple times, so do, do we really know who we are? Do you know who you are? I mean, with all your hang-ups and all your challenges and all your idiosyncrasies and even your gifts and warts and all, uh, do you really know who you are? And I think throughout Scripture we can find places where God says, this is who you are. And so last time we were in this subject, we decided that this is us, and we started a little bit of a definition there. In Scripture, we're going right back today to Matthew chapter 5. Oftentimes, this is called the Sermon on the Mount, or, or the opening part of it, but there's so much more than just being a Sermon on the Mount. There's so many personal applications in every word and every line of the Scripture. It's a series I call ID, please. So do we really know? who we are. Let's pause for just a moment, quiet our hearts before God. Our gracious, loving Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. We're so blessed to have this great privilege to join with others who know you and love you and want to know exactly the answer to that question, who are we? So we ask that you would bless this place with your presence. We ask that Jesus would be lifted up and that we would encounter his grace. And we pray that the Holy Spirit of God will invade this space to do his work of convincing and convicting and converting. And all of this to the honor and praise of our Savior, the Lord Jesus and all the people said, Amen. when I discover who I am, I will be free. That's the famous quotation of Ralph Ellison, the author of The Invisible Man. Time and time and time again in Scripture, we see folks who didn't really know who they were, and so throughout life, or much of their lives, they floundered, and they, and, and, and they struggled, and, you know, we meet people, I meet people like that, we all meet people like that from time to time. I think of David's nephew in the Old Testament, Abishai. Uh, he just, uh, he, he did some wonderful things, and I thank God as I reread parts of his life uh, recently that he was around David a lot because he was a real protector in many, many ways. And then you, you go over to the New Testament, Saul and, and Simon, uh, once they discovered who they really were, then their lives were radically changed. So much so that in the case of Saul and Simon, they needed new names. <laughs> Paul and Peter now, not Saul and Simon. So many of us, though, even Christian people, don't understand who we are. And if Ralph Ellison is right, then we're not free, we're bound. I believe the confusion about who we are results in many blood-bought followers of Christ really not operating at the level of effectiveness, influence, and authority that is rightfully ours. That's why I'm so thankful Jesus took time to climb a mountain to clearly speak to us and inform of us about us. Point by point, he lays out for us precise information about who we are 
and how we are to live. Jesus literally goes into great detail to tell us, well, this is who you are. This is us. So we began our series, uh, number one, uh, a couple of weeks ago, by saying that this is us, number one. We are, anybody remember? Blessed. Blessed. How many of you have been reciting that title ever since? We are blessed. We decided that it didn't matter what kind of condition we were in. It didn't matter where we were in life. didn't matter what station we had arrived at in life. We are blessed. That was uh, number one. So I want to continue in this examination of us today of who we really are. ID, please. And I'm calling it God on Display. We go to Matthew chapter 5, we begin at verse 13, where we left off last time, and I'm going to read from the easy read version, because sometimes we need to get it into our own language to a point where it really makes sense, every word of it, every thought, every line, and here's what Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its taste, it cannot be made salty again. Salt is useless if it loses its salty taste. It will be thrown out where people will just walk on it. You are the light that shines for the world to see. You are like a city built on a hill that cannot be hidden. People don't hide a lamp under a bowl. They put it on a lampstand. Then the light shines for everyone in the house. In the same way, you should be a light for other people. Live so that they will see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus says an awful lot (laughs) in those four verses. There's something you may not have noticed, kind of a subtitle there that I picked up off that. He says, you really, if you're my follower, you're a square peg. And I don't mean the failed TV series by that name. Name, I mean the traditional, as we called it, square peg in. Oh, you're right there. I love it. So Jesus uses, and we're going to keep this very simple as he did, two illustrations to tell us that we are responsible for God to be on display, for God to be on display in our lives. First, he says, we are salt. i got to just remind you that in that day and in that economy when Jesus lived, that salt was a very valuable commodity. In fact, Roman soldiers were paid in salt. And the word from which we get salary is a Latin word, salarium, which means salt money. We often say that person is or isn't worth it's salt. That's where that comes from. So Jesus is drawing on the prominence and the value of this commodity called salt. And he says, we are the salt of the earth. Of course, we've taken that same statement and we've changed it in a lot of different ways. And we've changed it to that man is worth his salt or he isn't worth his salt. And then we add all other kinds of, 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 uh, of theories to that. But just keep it simple. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth and salt is a valuable commodity. And salt does a lot of things. And there are three distinct properties 
that I want to share with you that salt has. It has more than three, but three that we really think of when we look at this verse. First off, it preserves. One man said, we, that is God's spirit-filled people, protect society from the full sway of evil that it would otherwise be unleashed on the world. Do you know that the Holy Spirit is the one who's holding back every bit of evil that could absolutely cause us to be, be taken over and enveloped and ruined and the end be drawn? Do you know that? Yeah. So salt, he says, will, will bring and keep society and protect society from the full sway of that. The second thing salt brings is flavor or seasoning for food. How many of you like salt on your food? All right. How many of you like salty food? <laughs> yeah. All right. How many like salt on their salty food? Yeah, me too. All right. Yeah. This is uh, for all of you that uh, love uh, high blood pressure. Now, the third characteristic is it irritates when it's placed on a wound. I'm not done. But that irritation purifies and aids in healing. Those three properties very clearly speak to our role in the, in the world around us. If God is virtually going to be on display, we need to keep these three characteristics in mind. He's also uh, trying to illustrate for us that we are not going to fit in Sorry to burst your bubble, but we're not going to fit in. You say, well, I can tell you right now, I'm a born-again believer. I love Jesus with all my heart, and God is the center of my life, and I only live to do his will, and so on. Well, let me tell you something. You're never going to really fit in. You say, well, I feel like I do. Well, then you need to take some inventory. Remember that square peg thing? In, in saying that we're the salt of the earth, here's what Jesus is doing. He's trying to save us from wasting our energy. Some of you really, really, and I love you in the Lord, and you know that so much, but you really need to hear this. He's trying to save us from wasting our energy and our efforts to be like everybody else. Now, just stop and ponder that for a minute. How much energy and effort do you take or do you use, do you consume, just trying to be and to look and to act and to react like everyone else? He tries to save us from the struggles that so many of us have faced in maybe back in high school or junior high, but we've carried them right on into our adult lives. We aren't supposed to be like those around us, so don't worry if we're not. That's a pretty good sign. We're supposed to be different. In fact, our difference is what makes us unique, and it's what, it is what makes us effective. Say, so, well, I just, I, I, I just want to kind of blend. I want to fit in. Mm. We're supposed to be salty. 
The way we live our lives is supposed to bring a new taste. You know, it's like when you put the salt on the food, it brings a new flavor, or it brings out the flavor to the table. And then thirdly, don't forget this, and we just kind of dropped this after a while, but we need to be a little bit irritating. I said a little, and I mean in the right way. I get it almost every day in my life. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that word. I said hell. I said, that's a Bible word. I like Bible words. Oh, I didn't mean to say Jesus. That's a Bible word. He's my best friend. See what's happening there? The salt is working, and that's irritating. You don't even have to say a word if you're really different. They'll pick up on it, and the irritation will drive them crazy. We're supposed to be living in such a way that we stand out in stark contrast to those around us. What are we against? Square pegs in what? Round holes. Notice what Jesus says. If we lose our difference and our distinction and we look and act just like the world, the world will throw out our truth and they'll walk all over us. And at that point, we are marginalized because we have minimized our differences. That's dangerous ground to be on. Our continued attempts to be more like society than like Jesus... Our continued attempts to be more like society than like Jesus has resulted in society rejecting the Jesus in us. Jesus says this to us. Hey, square pegs, (laughs) you are different. You are unique. You are strange. Boy, that got a lot of you off the hook. And you are unique. Isn't that great? This world system, can I remind you? This world system is not our home. This is not permanent residence for any born-again born believer. You know the old song, this is not my home, I'm just passing through. Yeah. Treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Quit trying to fit in. Quit trying to put that square peg in that round hole. Quit trying to adapt. Quit trying to adjust. Quit trying to blend in. Our difference is what makes us different. If you're like them, you can't lead them. If you're like them, you won't have influence over them. If you're like them, you don't get an audience with them. You say, Bob, it is so hard, though. It is so hard. Yeah, and you know what the hardest part of it is? It is so daily. A disappointed salesman who had made his best pitch. I mean, this was the last-ditch effort. But he failed to close the deal. Didn't even want to come back to his manager supervisor, but he did. And he said, sir, I guess you can, I guess you can lead a horse to water, but, 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 but you can't make him drink. The supervisor quickly responded. He said, son, your job isn't to make him drink. It's to make him thirsty. Your job isn't to make him drink. It's to make him thirsty. Huh? 
Christian, if you've got Jesus in your heart, display him. Sometimes we live our lives almost like we're ashamed to say, he lives in me, and he's my eternal savior, and he's brought me out of the miry clay and set my feet on a solid rock. If you've got him, display him. Are you displaying or presenting Jesus in a way that makes anyone thirsty for him? Are we creating thirst in others because of who we are and the way we live? And, and let me just add this. I'll say more about this in a moment. Don't get the idea this is all about me or all about us. It's all about him. Then Jesus goes one step further and he says this to us. We are points of light. He says we're the light of the world. That's the very one who claimed himself that he was the light of the world. Isn't that interesting? Probably pointing at one of the ten Greek uh, cities that made, uh, made up the cities of the Decapolis. Perhaps it was the city of Susita, which was a city literally located on a, like a diamond-shaped hill that could be seen from anywhere in that region, rising some 350 meters above the Sea of Galilee. He had a point of reference for sure when he said that. And my point of reference to remind you is, you can hide him, but he refuses to hide you. Hmm? When you take on his name, you're taking on the name that is above every other name. The name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In essence, in today's uh, vernacular, he's the, you are his billboard. You are his marketing plan. You are his brand, popular word today. You are his bump. I'm not endorsing any of these things, but I think some of them are downright foolish. You are his bumper sticker, his T-shirt, his commercial, his Instagram, his Twitter, his Facebook post, and his hashtag. You are those things. You must show the world Jesus. That is God on display. ID, please. You and I are the way people in this life see God. Matthew 5 and 16 says, and some of you know this, from this version, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds, and I added, and moral excellence, and recognize and honor and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We've got to remember and keep in mind, friends, it's not we are on display. No, no, no. It is He is on display. Huh? In John 3.30, John the baptizer said of Jesus these words, He must increase, but I must decrease. He must become greater, and I must become less. In Galatians 2.20, the apostle Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. 
And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about him. I repeat, beloved, this is not me. This is not we. It's all he. He. Jesus. 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 Gloria Gaither wrote it. There's just something about that name. One day the grave could conceal him no longer. One day the stone rolled away from the door and then he arose over death he had conquered and now has ascended my Lord evermore. Because death could not hold him and the grave could not keep him from rising again. Oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my. Living, he loved me. Please repeat these lines after me as I share them with you. Just in one voice, it'll be so nice to hear. Living, he loved me. me. Beautiful. Dying, he saved me. me. Buried, he carried. My sins far away. away. Rising, he justified. justified. Freely Freely forever. One day he's coming. Pardon me, but one day he's coming. coming. Oh, glorious day. day. And on that day, according to John in Revelation 5.12, we will be gathered with all the redeemed of all the ages, along with the 420 elders and the angels 10,000 times. 10,000, you count them up, that's 100 million angel voices and thousands upon thousands more around the throne of the one true God, the creator of all, the eternally good, good Father. And together we will sing heaven's national anthem as one loud voice saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Hallelujah. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory, all glory and blessing. And the people said, Amen and Amen and Amen and Amen forever and ever and ever. It is all about him. It is stated as a fact, you have light. But Jesus then addresses that we are responsible. This is so, this is so penetrating. You have light, and he says, I'm not just implying something here, he says then you are responsible for the way that light shines. Around the Christian circle, I often hear people talk about how much they love the Bible, and that just throws my heart, it does. And, and oh, I'm learning the Bible. Oh, I'm learning it, and the more I learn of it, I think the more I love it. And, 
and just learning it, and I'm just loving it. And yeah, yeah. Well, you left something out. Learning it and loving it don't cut it. Matter of fact, if all you're doing is learning and learning and learning and learning, all you're doing is becoming spiritually obese. You need to learn it so you can love it, so you can live it. The learning and the loving, sorry to say it, are really useless unless you're living it. A good life, I'm going to put it this way so you can get it in your notes. A good life and good works do not make you holy. Instead, they make the holy identifiable. So if there are no good works and no moral excellence, there's no God being seen. Let that statement sink in. You need it, I need it, we all need it. I mean, all we need to do is look at the world around us. Huh? If we, can I just speak heart to heart? If we are bound by what they're bound by, if we're addicted to what they're addicted to, if we're controlled by what they're controlled by, if we're, if we're trapped by what they're trapped by, if we work the way they work, if we talk the way they talk, if we react the way they react, Careful, careful, careful. This is a trap. We are showing them that this is what God looks like, acts like, and approves of. My friends, we have a huge, heavy responsibility to shine differently. And if we don't shine differently, then we won't shine brightly. He says, no man lights a lamp and then puts it under a bowl. Or you, so you might have read it in a version that says under a bushel or under a basket. Do you know what happens when you put a light, a lighted candle under a bowl rather than on a lampstand? It goes out because it loses its ability to shine and the lack of oxygen extinguishes the fire. Now here's a word. If we refuse as born-again Christians, to openly shine and refuse to testify and refuse to share the love of God, then we will lose our fire. Isn't that what has happened in a lot of church settings? Yes, it is. We shine only when we're in the bowl and we refuse to take uh, intentional steps to move out of that and share and invite and witness. And so there is no fire as a result out there, out there, and the darkness grows darker while the lighted places grow brighter. And I want to say this in love, and I don't, want to, I don't want to change anything you might say at the end of today's messages, but you know, because, oh, that was a wonderful message. Oh, that just, and I got so much out of that. And I always want to say, so now, what are you going to do with it? How is that going to change your life? How is that going to light your candle. How are you going to shine going forward? Perhaps the best picture of what we're supposed to be doing by how we live in love is the following statement by, made by a very young boy. 
Many, many years ago, before electricity, earlier times, the old lamplighter, a man who did this every night, was lighting the street lamps in the city. And this little boy caught sight of this. He saw him, and as he did, he went from post to post, and the little guy finally exclaimed, Look! Look! He's poking holes in the darkness! Are you poking holes in the darkness? We are living in a very dark world. What about in your house? What about in your family? What about in your neighborhood? What about in your work, in your office, or your place of work, or your school? Are you poking holes in the darkness, or are you just enduring the darkness? I'm calling you back to your preschool and your primary and your uh, church groups and summer camps and VBS when you used to sing, this little light of mine, I'm going to what? I'm going to let it shine. And then we'd sing that second verse. Won't let. Here's the problem with that. That's very poor theology. But here's, here's, we don't have to sing the next line because it isn't Satan. It's we who have hidden the light. He gets blamed for an awful lot of stuff. I don't feel pity for him, but we've hidden it ourselves. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is time to shine again. And if you don't know how to do that, you don't need to take a Bible course, and you don't need to go to seminary, and you need, don't need to spend all night on your knees and face before God. Let me just tell you where to start. Go back to the day you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and relive the events of that day or that hour or that moment and that feeling and that assurance and that confidence, and you were ready to charge hell with a water pistol at that moment. And where has that light gone? We need to shine again. And that's us. ID, please. Because number one, we are blessed. But number two, we're the, we're the square pegs and the points of light. We're supposed to be his hype man. We don't, we don't steal the show. We don't steal the spotlight. All we do is consistently and persistently point everything to him. And it's time to put God on display. It was some time before the Civil War in, the city, in a city down in the south. And at the center of town, there's a big commotion as a crowd gathers for a public auction, as was their custom to gather and watch the proceedings. In the crowd is an uncouth, foul-mouthed, loud, boisterous man who's about the meanest, cruelest, most hateful man in the whole area. 
In the crowd is another man who stands out for his dignity, his genteel mannerism, and his soft-spoken tone. He's one of the most kind and gentle and gracious men anybody knew. Both men, along with the crowd, wait for the auction to begin. So the auctioneer steps to the podium and begins rattling off his words as the first item to be sold is brought to the auction block. On the block is a beautiful young black girl, about 20 years of age. Her dress is old, tattered, torn, but it's remarkably clean. She is obviously filled with anxiety, and she's full of fear as the bidding begins. From the outset, The loud, obnoxious man seemed to have his evil, lecherous eyes just set on this lovely, innocent young lady. She was cringing in fear as he opened the bidding. When the kind gentleman saw her fear, he too placed a bid. Soon only two men were involved in the bidding at the price of the girl. And it rose higher, and it rose higher, and it rose higher. And finally, the evil man bowed out of the bidding when he realized the price of the girl was more than he was willing to pay. When the auctioneer closed the bidding, the kind gentleman paid the price for his purchase, and he was handed the bill of sale, and he turned to leave. And the young girl started to follow her new master, and he then turned to her and asked, Where are you going? And she said, why, I'm going with you. You bought me, and I belong to you. Oh, 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 you, oh the man said, you, you misunderstood. I didn't buy you to make you my slave. I bought you to set you free. Then he took the bill of sale And he wrote across it in big block letters, F-R-E-E, signed his name and gave it to the girl. I don't don't understand, the young lady said. "You, you, You mean I'm free? Yes, you are free. You, you, you mean I can go in wherever I want and I can do as I please? Exactly, the kind man said. You're free. She replied, sir, I don't know who you are, but no one has ever shown such love and kindness to me. I am free to do as I please, and if I am, nothing would please me more than to go with you and serve you till the day I die. And that day she went home with him, not as his slave, but as his willing servant. Hmm. Hmm. Beloved, Every person in this room has been a slave to sin. But we've also been given the free, gracious gift of an incredible price paid for by Jesus himself, not to make us his slave, but to set us free. To set us free. 
How can we respond in any other way than to say, if you love me, Jesus, that much, I'll serve you forever. My friend, that's the power of God's amazing grace. And it's available right here and right now for you to heal you and to free you and to forgive you and to set you free. That's why he brought you here today. You are not here by accident. He brought you here today to hear these truths and once and for all to receive the grace that you might begin to live the life he created you to live. I mean truly live. As I draw it down, I want to use the powerful words of Austin French's Freedom Hymn, which go like this. I push, I pull, go back and forth, finding myself pounding on a locked door. I try to make it out alone without your help, but I know I'll never win this war. I can never be, listen to these lines, never be, it's just the worship team, I can never be free without you. I can never be, never be me without you. This is the sound of chains breaking. This is the beat of a heart changing. This is a song of a soul forgiven. This is my freedom hymn. This is my freedom hymn. This is my freedom hymn. I breathe the air of freedom in knowing my life is better off in your hands. The past is gone. What's done is done. Austin, would you please say that again? The past is gone. What's done is done. Now I'm alive. And I'm never going to look back. I can never be, never be free without you. I can never be, never be me without you. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Who the sun sets is free indeed. Who the sun sets is free. I'm free. Oh, I'm free. This is the sound of chains breaking. This is the beat of a heart changing. This is a song of a soul forgiven. Oh, this is the sound of chains breaking. And this is the beat of a heart changing. This is a song of a soul forgiven. This is my freedom hymn. This is my freedom hymn. Him. This is my freedom hymn. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. I am free.